Great to see you. Uh, yeah, Sam, thanks for that. Um, I have um, just the, the, the topic here, the, the, the first way we're going to kick this off is to talk through uh, why rural, why rural church planting, why rural emphasis, and, and so um, we're going to talk through that. Um, before we do, well, just, just get your Bibles out. We're going to be in uh, Mark chapters uh, 5 and 6. Um, we're going to start in 6 and then jump back to 5. Uh, so if you have a Bible, you can go there as I kind of start this out. Um, <clears throat> but I've been a part of the Acts 29 network um, as I planted a church with Acts 29 about uh, 10 years ago. And so I was about 12 when I planted uh, not really, but I was way too young uh, to plant a church regardless. Uh, and so what we, they let me in, and uh, we, we planted in this little town. Um, I guess little is a relative term. Um, it, it's a community of about 8,000, so that's big for some of you and very small for others of you. Um, but then our county, we really planted with a vision to reach the county, which only has 20,000 people in the whole county. Uh, so it's, it's a very small and sparsely populated place, and uh, it's a beautiful place in northern Wisconsin. Um, but we, we went there with a desire to see these uh, little towns, and there's a, there's just a bunch of little towns throughout the county of two, three hundred people. We want to see these people reached with the gospel. And there were very, very few churches, if any churches, in these small communities that were preaching Christ. Um, and so we, we went there 10 years ago, and we, we started with Acts 29 because it was, uh, it was the only place I felt home. I was sort of a, uh, I didn't really have a home as a, I grew up in non-denominational Bible churches, and while that's wonderful, I, I knew I, I needed to partner with someone, and Acts 29 was what, what I found. And so uh, they let me in, uh, and I'm grateful for that. Uh, but but it's a little. It was always a little surreal to go to Acts 29 events because most of the guys in Acts 29 were not in small towns, and that's still true. Although it's a, it's increasingly growing and it's and it's changing a bit. Um, there's an emphasis moving here, which is good. But about nine, uh, eight or nine years ago, I went to a, a pastor's retreat with my wife. And uh, we had a wonderful time. We loved those retreats. But it was always like, we always had to make excuses for why we were where we were. <laughs> it was kind of weird. Uh, at least that's how I felt. And this might just be my own insecurities. But we, I had one, ex one um, situation that came up that just really highlighted this for me. Uh, I, was, I think we were in Southern California at the time uh, in, uh, at this retreat. And I was going down to the lobby of the hotel to get some coffee in the morning for my wife. And, um, and they had a Starbucks down there. So I got a couple cups of coffee from Starbucks and got in the elevator. And there's one guy in the elevator as I get in. And so as an introvert, that's always my worst nightmare because you got to talk to just one guy. Like if there's a ton of people, you can avoid it, but you can't avoid one guy. And so he, he started out. I don't even know who he is, to be honest. I hope I'm not offending him or anybody else. Uh, but, uh, you know, he just sort of started this conversation and said, well, you must really like Starbucks because I'm holding two Starbucks cups. And that was how he started the conversation. So from there I went with, well, yeah, I live in a small town. I'm only, I'm an hour away from the closest Starbucks, so I have to get it while I can. 
tried to make a joke, and it wasn't funny. But he, uh, but he, uh, he was like, he didn't really laugh at the Starbucks joke. He, he, was, he literally stepped back against the wall and said, you live an hour from Starbucks? Like, that's what he took away from that. And, and I was like, oh, my goodness, okay. So for two minutes or so as we rode this elevator, which felt like an eternity in hell, but... Um, <laughs> I had to explain or try to justify to this man I'd never met before and didn't know and still don't know who he is, why I'm in a town that's an hour from Starbucks. Uh, and you just, you, it's just crazy how things have changed in Acts 29. This event and, and the other summits that we've done throughout the, the globe over the last um, year or year and a half is just a testament to where the network has, has come. And it's an encouraging thing. And I'm I want to I be really clear from the, from the beginning here. I know not all of you are in small towns, and I know not all of you are called to rural places. We are not pitting ourselves against cities. That's not the goal. We are not against cities. We're not, a, we're not trying to tip everything in the other direction. Uh, we believe all places and all people need to hear Jesus. Amen. And so, um, but, but as we, we talk specifically today about rural ministry and what that looks like, I think we do need to address some of the common um, misconceptions that exist in, in this conversation. And in, in one case, uh, you've probably heard this, I don't know if you've heard this or not, but I've heard it, where if you are called, genuinely called to a small place or a small town or a rural area, then there's one of two options that people will, will kind of assign to you. Either you are uh, not as gifted as somebody else, or you're wasting your gifts. And I, I've heard both of those um, in, in my, as I've talked to people, not anybody in our network in Acts 29, but that's, that seems to be a common belief that if you're called genuinely by Jesus to a small town, either you're just sort of the junior varsity guy and you don't have what it takes to be in an important place, uh, or you're wasting the gift that God has given you. And the truth is that neither of those things are necessarily true. I guess they could be true, theoretically, right? But, it, but they're not necessarily true. Because Jesus does love small places. He loves large places too. And he loves the tiny farm towns as much as he loves the metropolis. And so when we start to talk through this, this issue of church planting and particularly rural church planting, we're often reminded uh, by our city brethren and uh, well-meaning that, that Paul focused his attention on the cities, and so we should too, and that's the strategic thing to do. That was, that's really a common view, and it, it, there's truth in that. I'm not, I'm not going to stand up here and say Paul didn't go to cities. Paul did go to cities. But I think one of the things that we neglect in this conversation is also what Jesus did, too. Jesus did not spend all of his time in the cities. In fact, most of his time, he was outside of the cities. He spent most of his time uh, in, in small little villages and ar around the Sea of Galilee and going to places that were uh, less populated. He, he spent his time among the country folk and he grew up as a small town boy and went back to his small town for his first public sermon he preached in Nazareth he preached in his home synagogue 
And, and so we see the heart of Jesus for people in small towns. We also see that the people in these small towns, many of them had hard hearts and rejected him, right? So it, hard, there's hard soil in small towns as there is in large cities. Um, but I think what I want to do just for uh, our time together is to look first at um, a, a verse at the end of, God, uh, of Mark 6, in the last verse in that chapter, I think this summarizes for us, gives us a summary of Jesus' ministry in, uh, in his um, earthly life um, as he walked on the earth for three years. And I think it just gives us a picture of what he was about. And you'll notice that there isn't a, uh, a pitting one thing against another. It says in verse 56, wherever Jesus came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment, and as many as touched it were made well. Jesus, it says here, went to these three categories, villages, cities, countryside. Jesus didn't emphasize one over the other on a great degree. He spent time in all of these things. And so as you, as you read, um, read this as villages, cities, and countryside, these are th three distinct words in the Greek language. I'm not a Greek expert, but just doing a little bit of word study on this. The, a village would have been a, a, a small populational area. It, was, it would have been a place that wasn't a walled city. It didn't have the the infrastructure perhaps of a, of a larger uh, population area, it didn't have the same protections, but it was a place where people lived. The cities, of course, um, we, we know is where the Greek, the Greek word is polis, we get, it, we get our word metropolis from that word, large population. But countryside is an interesting one. This is what the ESV translates as the countryside, and it's, it's from this word agros, which is where we get agriculture. It could actually be translated field. <laughs> it could be translated farm. Um, but but this, the idea is that there are people who live on farms and in fields. And, uh, you know, that this is where Jesus went to these people. And it says wherever he went, in any of these places, he, 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 uh, they would lay the sick, it says, in the marketplace. In, and he would um, be there and they would touch the fringe of his garment, and as many as did it were, were made well. And so it, you see the healing power of Jesus in this text, and you see his desire to save and, and heal people. Of course, we're, we're talking here about physical healings, but there's a, there's a deeper thing that the physical healings are pointing us to, right? That Jesus is showing us his power to heal in the physical world, shows us his greater power to heal the soul. And Jesus is pointing us to that and, and is showing us this reality. And so we look at this and I think we need to realize that, that Jesus does care about all people everywhere. That's not controversial. That shouldn't be, at least. And so we should care about all people everywhere. Amen. And as we go into our communities, whether it's large or small, we should bring with us the healing power of Jesus through the preaching of the gospel and through loving his people. Um, so um, one of the things that, that's a common 
belief or, or just especially I, so just to give you this background I didn't grow up in a country kind of lifestyle I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago um, basically one giant metropolis um, from we, we could say Milwaukee Wisconsin to Chicago is pretty much just one giant city at this point um, I grew up there I grew up in the northern suburbs of Chicago and uh, I did not grow up in a small town uh, the, the town I grew up in has more people than the entire county that I live in now. So that's, there's just a lot of, there's a lot of people. Um, but my understanding of small towns was informed far more by popular culture than it was by reality. Um, and one of the common images of, of small town life that I believed growing up was like the picture of Mayberry from Andy Griffith's show. <laughs> And it's like you got two sheriff, one of them doesn't even have his gun loaded. Um, that's not reality. <laughs> uh, he, there's this friendly town drunk that shows up once in a while to go into the, the drunk tank and otherwise not much goes on, right? There's just sort of a, a nice friendly atmosphere and there might be some squabbles that Andy Griffith has to figure out, but, but there's not a whole lot going on. And uh, it wasn't until I actually moved to the community I'm in, and I've, I've been there now 10 years, and I realize that's not at all what small towns are like. Um, they're not really ideal places to live. I know some, some parts of the world, uh, maybe the wealthy flee to the countryside, but at least in my area, that's not true. There's very, very few people with wealth um, there's an incredible amount of poverty and a lot of generational poverty. You meet people all the time who are um, just in a place where they're stuck. They're just, they have no upward mobility. They, they have poor education or whatever you want to pin it to. Uh, they feel stuck. You have crime. There's a lot of crime in rural places. Um, now, crime can look different in rural places and urban places, but there is a lot of crime. There's a great amount of domestic violence. Um, a lot of this flows out of hopelessness. A lot of this flows out of brokenness. A lot of this flows out of the generational things that people experience. Um, but I'm, I'm constantly, and I'm not exaggerating, I'm constantly dealing with domestic abuse and violence in in my community and in the people within my church. Um, this is something that I, I never thought I'd have to be constantly confronting men about their, their violence, but here I am. Um, you see incredible amounts of substance abuse. Again, flowing, I think, out of hopelessness and a sense of um, just there's nothing better to do. And so let's get drunk or let's do drugs or whatever. And, and it can go on and on. Um, you, you see a lot of brokenness in these communities. My, my own community, Antigo, uh, had um, a couple years back a drug ring that was run by public school teachers. It's like Breaking Bad. It was really weird. Um, they had this whole thing going on and they eventually got caught and arrested. And now, believe it or not, the principal of my children's school was one of these men who was involved in this drug ring because there's not a big pool to choose from. So it's like, he got a slap on the wrist, and let's give him a job as the principal of this school. 
this is, this is the town I live in. Um, and in fact, my county is one of the primary manufacturers of crystal meth in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, these are dark places. They're places that need the hope of the gospel. So Jesus uh, doesn't shy away from dark places. Let's look at, uh, let's go back just a page to chapter five. This is a very familiar story to you, I'm sure. Um, verse one through 20 is uh, our passage this morning. And this is the passage where Jesus heals a man with a demon. And um, in this passage, Jesus is going out to a rural place to, to a, a man who's been kind of cast out of the, the main hub of the community because he's dangerous, he's violent, um, he's, he's a risk to everybody. And so they've cast him out to the tombs, to, to the cemetery, and they're just chaining him up out there trying to keep him at bay. And uh, Jesus goes out there and meets him there. It says, uh, they came to the other side of the sea to the town of the Gerasenes, country of the Gerasenes, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Jesus is on the Sea of Galilee where he spent a lot of his time around these small fishing villages, and he gets onto one of these little towns, and immediately it says this man jumps uh, towards him. He's obviously not staying where he is supposed to be. Um, he runs after Jesus, and it says he lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with chains, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs uh, and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. This is a broken man, a man who's been just absolutely devastated by the work of Satan in his life. And here he is just in a heartbreaking state. And it says, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he fell before him. And crying with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus, the son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And so here Jesus is commanding these spirits to come out, and they're freaking out. Um, they, they are wanting him to leave them alone. Uh, they know Jesus' power, right? They beg him not to torment them. I think that's important. It's important for us to know this, that there is nothing that Satan can throw in our, in our ministries that Jesus doesn't have the power to, to heal and they know it. They, they froth at the mouth, but they, they know that their end is sure. And so here you have Jesus commanding the, the unclean spirits out. And Jesus asked him in verse 9, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So this is kind of an interesting detail, right? Like, why are there pigs in Israel? And we don't need to get into all of this. But this was a generally believed to be a more Gentile region 
within, uh, within the borders of Israel. And so here you have these pig farmers, which pigs are unclean animals in, in the Jewish system. So they, they're out of place, right? They shouldn't really be there, um, but here they are. And so now the demons say, okay, don't cast us out of the country. Why don't you just put us into those pigs? That'll be good. And Jesus actually lets them do that. In verse 13, it says, so he gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. So Jesus not only cleanses the man, he cleanses the country as well. He takes these pigs and he says, ah, we'll let the demons kill these pigs. Just kind of get a two-for-one special here, right? This, get, get the man cleansed of his demons, remove the pigs from the place where they're not supposed to be. And the story goes out, and everybody's wondering about this, and they start to come out from the city and the country. Everybody's wanting to see what Jesus is doing. And it says, verse 15, And they came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? He's restored to what he should be. And they're afraid. Because they, they, they can't comprehend the power of God to actually do something like this. And they are just terrified of the fact that this man is in his right mind and he's clothed. They were like happier when he was naked and screaming or something. I don't, I don't know what that's about. They're, they're just... They're just overcome by uh, absolute shock that this could be happening. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they begged Jesus to depart from their region. I've always read that and wondered, what? Why? Like, you, you see Jesus do this amazing thing in, these, in this community's life, and they want him to leave. There's hard soil. People don't understand that they need Jesus and they would often rather see him go than have him shake up the status quo. Mm. So it says, this is the, this is the real heart of the, the passage that we're going to hone in on here though in verse uh, 18. It says he get, is getting into the boat. The man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him. Okay, so that, let's stop and think about that for a minute. Here's this man who had been possessed by many demons. Um, we don't know how long he had been under their, their torment. Jesus comes into his life, heals him, restores him, and, and brings uh, all of this amazing thing down. And the man wants to follow Jesus. Isn't that what you would think Jesus wants him to do? Like, wouldn't the normal thing be, hey, yeah, come on in the boat. Like, hang out with us. Like, you want to be with us? Awesome. But Jesus doesn't permit him to come with him. It's, it's, a, it's a confusing thing. But when we see what he says next, it makes sense. He did not permit him, 
but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Jesus says, you can't come with me because I have a mission for you. You get to go home. And you get to go to your friends. Now, the ESV translates this friends. The, the word is actually untranslatable. It's actually just go home to yours. That's the literal translation. But that doesn't make sense in English very well. So the idea here is you, you, you got to go home to your people. Whether they're your friends or your family or whatever, go home to your people. And he's told to tell them what the Lord has done for him, how he has had mercy on this man. And it says he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This man became a missionary for Jesus, much like the story of the woman at the well in John 4. Same, same script. Brokenness. They meet Jesus. They're sent back to their home. They preach the gospel. They communicate the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done. And people begin to believe. This is, this is what we're to do in small towns. This is what we're to do in big cities. We are to go home to our friends and tell them what the Lord has done for us. How he's had mercy on us. Jesus enters into a place like this, this broken place, and he brings his healing power to it. And yes, there are many who will reject him, even in light of it. But they, there are some who will believe, and there are some who will trust. And I, I'm just, I'll share a story with you from my own church. This, this one, it always warms my heart when I think about this man named Colton. He's a young guy, younger than me, and um, he became a believer. He grew up in Antigo, and um, went off and you know became a Christian after high school, and he came back home, um, and he was at Walmart because that's what you do in small town Wisconsin. You go to Walmart, and he ran into his friend, a friend uh, from high school named Evan, who is still home working for his dad. They they're a mechanic, a, a diesel mechanic, um, and Evan and Colton were good buddies. They would. In high school, they, they drank together, they smoked pot together, they did the whole thing, they were, they were friends. And Colton knows Jesus, and he starts to talk to Evan, and he says, do you know Jesus, Evan? And Evan's going, I, I don't know if I know Jesus. I'm like, what are you talking about? And so Evan goes and buys him a Bible, says, read this, just read it, and we'll talk about it. And so Evan goes home and starts to read the Bible, and Evan just becomes like in that moment he becomes a Christian he's just reading the Bible and he's going I can't believe that I didn't know this and and he so he runs down he's still living with his folks at that point in his life uh, he runs down to the living room he says mom dad have you ever read the Bible this thing is amazing and he starts to tell them about Jesus and soon Colton brings Evan to our church and soon Evan brings his mom and dad to our church and soon mom and dad bring the other brother to our church and soon that brother brings his sister to our church. This, this thing is happening where the gospel is impacting lives in this small town 
with these people who have always lived there, will probably never leave there, have born and bred the whole family. They're not going anywhere. And yet they had never heard the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Though they had been at some points in their lives religious, like most small town people are, they did not know the true gospel until Colton went home to his friends and shared that gospel. And we, we just like, we celebrate the liberating power of Jesus through his, through his grace. And we celebrate it in all places, in small towns, in villages, and in the countryside. Um, so that's, that's why we do what we do. Fundamentally, it's because Jesus loves these people and Jesus desires to save them. We do this because he modeled it. But, but let, let me just um, kind of conclude with one last thing for us. We're going to go to another passage just to finish up. Um, but I, I want to talk to you for a moment about the unique challenges I think that small towns and rural places face. I'm, and I'm not saying that they're more difficult than cities, because I think there's, there's a lot of overlap, actually, and then there's a lot of distinctions. But one of the challenges of a rural pastor is isolation, uh, uh, under-resourced um, opportunities and those kind of things. There's, there's a lot of challenges there. And, and there's, a, there's a passage in 1 Corinthians 3 where, where Paul really just helps us, whether, no matter what our context is, is this is applicable, but it, it helps us think through um, what are we really called to here? Because we're not Jesus, right? We don't have the, the same power that Jesus has in that sense, but we have his spirit empowering us. Um, so 1 Corinthians 3, uh, we're going to start in verse 5 and look down at verse 9. And this is, again, a familiar passage to you, but I think it's helpful just for our own hearts to, to hear this. Because uh, if you're like me, you can look out at your community and you can see all the brokenness and all the, all the hurt, all the suffering, and just go, I, I feel extremely overwhelmed uh, with all of the things. There's so many things. And I think Paul helps us here with this. He, he says, um, he, he starts by addressing the, the worldliness of the Corinthians in their view of ministers and how they're kind of picking teams. And he says in verse 5, what, is, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Here we go. Servants. Through whom you believed. Right, so, so, we are conduits by which people believe. We're not, we're not the Savior. And he says, servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. 
so Paul then will go on to talk a little bit more about the building analogy, but he first starts with this field analogy, this farm analogy. And this is, this is something that I, I, I've just been um, confronted with as I've, over the last few months, um, and I'm just amazed by it. I never really saw it before. But, Paul, but Paul's saying here, we all, we all know the story, this, this part of the passage that says, well, you know, the one who plants and the one who waters, they're, they're together in it, right? They're, they've got the same job, ultimately, to, to do what needs to be done so that there's a, a harvest. But if you look at verse, um, the end of verse 8, it says, each, the one who plants and the one who waters, will receive his wages according to his labor. Now, I don't know how many farmers you know. Probably you know quite a few. Um, farmers don't get paid according to their labor. They get paid according to the harvest. They're paid. We live in potato country, which you don't think Wisconsin and potatoes. You think Wisconsin and cheese. There's a lot of that, too. But we, where I live, it's, it's just great soil for potatoes. So there's tons of potatoes, tons of potato farms. Um, we, we actually call the potato farmers, jokingly, the potato mafia, because they call the shots. Um, they, they get to do whatever they want. Um, so they are the primary industry. And they get paid according to how many potatoes they, they actually can bring out. But God says we're not paid that way. We're not paid according to the production, the fruit. We're paid according to our labor. This is freeing for us as we minister to people. Because here's the thing. It says in verse 9 that we are God's fellow workers. We're his co-workers. And the church is his field. It's God's field. So God has to be the one that's concerned with the production, with the fruitfulness. We just get to be farmhands. And that's freeing. It is freeing that we can labor for Jesus and yet we don't have to shoulder the burden of what is actually produced. Be faithful. Be faithful to Jesus in what he's called you to do. But don't weigh your heart down with the burdens of fruitfulness. He's the one who owns the field. He's the one responsible for what comes of it. He's the one that ultimately produces the growth himself, right? And so we are, we are paid according to our labor, not according to the production. And I think in, as we engage in small towns, I think it's, just, it's so easy to be discouraged. Um, I've, I've been discouraged over the last, uh, you know, maybe, well, all of us have been discouraged through COVID, but, but I think we have, so our church has a, we're, we're a multi-church, uh, multi-site church uh, in a rural place. And we have our, our main location in Anago, 8,000 people, but we've begun to start places in other towns. And we started a, a campus or location, we don't like the campus terminology, but a congregation um, in, uh, this little town called White Lake, 300 people, 346 if you're driving in and see the population sign. And we got in there and we've got a core group and we're, we're laboring and we're preaching and we've got services going on out there and 
and we're seeing like nothing happen. And so this is not your success story. <laughs> this is like, we're talking, what do we do? What do we do? Do we keep going indefinitely and just, or what? Like, that's where we're at. I'll just be real honest. That's where we're at. As an elder board, we're thinking through those things because it is, and it's discouraging, but we, we've got to continually go back to these, these truths that it's not, it's not about the fruit. That's God's job. It's about the faithfulness. That's our part. And so I, I hope that encourages you. I hope you see Jesus' heart for small places. I hope you're affirmed if, if you serve in a small place that what you're doing matters to Jesus. He loves these people. He loves these places. He wants to save, and he will save. You, you may not see the same amount of salvations or baptisms or whatever as somewhere else, but that's not, that's not your gig. Your gig is to work in the field and just worry about planting and watering. Let God worry about the growth. All right, with that, I'll, I'll pray for you. I'll step down here. Father, we thank you that you have loved us in Jesus so well. And thank you that you have shown us not only your power to save, which is mighty, but you've shown us that, that our role in this is to be uh, your coworker. And so we pray, Father, that as we go from here back to our, to our churches, back to our towns, that we would see our role as your fellow laborer, that we would trust you to produce the fruit, that we would not be burdened by that, that weight, and that we would leave this on you, and we pray that you would produce much fruit according to your will, and we, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.